0: Welcome to Gangway the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. You are listening to kind of a special episode right now, at least for me. This is the first episode I've recorded in my new home state of Connecticut. I moved here over the summer, away from Ashton University, which is where I've been for eight years, and where the podcast got its start. I moved to Fairfield University, which is right on the Long Island Sound. It's been amazing, and I'm thrilled that Fairfield University's student-run radio station, WVOF 88.5 FM, has allowed me to use their recording studio for episodes of the podcast. Ultimately, the goal is to get back to where we were with the podcast back in 2013-2014, when we were pushing out new episodes every two weeks. We've got some great guests lined up for the near future, including Eli Sanders, Skip Hollensworth, and Sonia Huber, among others. So stay tuned. Our guest this week is Catherine Miles. Miles is the author of three books, including, most recently, Superstorm Nine Days Inside Hurricane Sandy. Her essays and articles have appeared in publications including Audubon, Best American Essays, Boston Globe, Ecotone, The New York Times, Outside. Pacific Standard, Popular Mechanics, and Time. Her forthcoming book, Quakeland, which examines the changing face of earthquake hazards in America, will be published by Dutton in July 2017. Miles currently serves as a writer-in-residence at Green Mountain College, where she also teaches in the college's low-residence graduate programs. She lives with her family in Portland, Maine. She recently wrote a piece that appeared in the Boston Globe about the death and ultimate recovery of a woman who got lost hiking the Appalachian Trail. We'll talk with her about that story, as well as some of her other work. Catherine, welcome to Gangry the Podcast.
1: Hi, thanks so much for having me.
0: Uh, I was hoping we could talk about uh, your story that recently appeared in um, the, uh, in the Boston Globe, and at least online it had the headline, When You Find My Body, The Last Days of Jerry Largay. And I don't know if I said the last name correctly. Um, But can you talk a little bit about that story and I guess give a synopsis of what the story is about?
1: Sure. And it is correct. It is Jerry Largay. Um, Jerry Largay was a 66-year-old hiker who uh, decided to do uh, what's called a flip-flop hike on the Appalachian Trail. So she was going to do the entire... 2,100 and some odd change miles of the trail. She started in uh, West Virginia at the halfway point, and her plan was to hike all the way north to Katahdin, the northern terminus here in Maine, then head back to West Virginia and hike the second half of it. And uh, she had made her way from West Virginia with her hiking partner. Um, Her hiking partner had to leave in New Hampshire, and she continued on. Um, her husband was running support for her. She had a back injury that prevented her from carrying sort of a full pack or, you know, a week or two weeks' worth of gear, which would be typical. And she was doing one three-day stretch and um, just sort of took a, a wrong turn. She had stepped off the trail to use the bathroom and became lost, uh, went out of her way to be found. The main Warden Service, in conjunction with the Civilian Air Patrol and Border Patrol and the Maine State Police, launched one of the state's uh, biggest most extensive and arguably most expensive uh, manhunt in, in the state's history and couldn't locate her um they uh scaled back the search pretty significantly at about the two-week point and what we now know because she kept the journal was that she had managed to survive at least 19 days and possibly as long as 27 days so um I cover the Appalachian Trail uh, fairly regularly for Outside Magazine. Um, I'm a hiker myself and uh, so the story really resonated with me in a lot of different ways and uh, I really wanted to have a lot of space to write the story and so I pitched it originally to the Boston Globe Sunday Magazine while she was still missing Mm -hmm. and wrote my first story for them while it was still an active search and she was still missing and then um, I continued to cover the story both for the Globe magazine and also for the Globe front page as the story unfolded. And so this story, When You Find My Body, and that's um, a quote that was taken from the front of the journal that she wrote to whatever individual would find her remains. This was the last in my series on the subject.
0: Mm-hmm. What um, you, you said you're, you're a hiker and you cover the Appalachian Trail. Um, when did you I mean, first read about about the, the search and, and what was your initial... What did you do first to try and maybe start figuring out what was going on?
1: Sure. and You know, this is a little unusual because I I live in the state of Maine. And, uh, you know, in my former role uh, teaching environmental writing at Unity College, I taught a good number of the game wardens. And so I tend to sort of have my radar up for game warden stories. And for some reason, I missed the initial search as it was covered in the local papers. And I came to the story after she had been missing for a year. And what had really interested me was the fact that she had been missing for a full year and the wardens were choosing to go back out mm-hmm. and start the search again. And in a in a state with a... Um, Questionable governor who's known for not spending money, um, and a state that's a pretty poor state to begin with. That was a really interesting use of funds to me. And so I contacted the former head of the warden, um, and had, you know, asked him about it. And, and he thought there was something there There was a reason they were going back out. So my, my interest was peaked mm-hmm. in that, uh, capacity. But, but it really very quickly for me became a character driven narrative of this amazing woman named Jerry Largay. And um, the head of the warden search service, this guy named Kevin Adam. And and they really became these sort of dueling characters to me. Um, and, and that sort of superseded anything that I was sort of learning about the expenditures of going back out to search.
0: Mm-hmm. When did you um, find out that she, that she had this journal? And, and uh, did you find that out about the same time when you realized they were doing the search, or did that come later?
1: That came much, much later. So um, I wrote my first story, Um, in January of 2015. Um, Her body still had not been discovered. It was still very much an open case. Mm -hmm. And the possibility of criminal activity was still definitely a possibility to to sort of armchair quarterbacks, if not the wardens themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, Her body was then found um, in October of 2015. Um, And at that point, the wardens released just the briefest of statements um, and it took a lot of FOIA requests from a lot of journalists to get uh, their full file, which was this massive, sprawling 2,000-page file. Um, and there was mention of the journal in that file. Um, the journal was redacted, obviously, in the file. Um, and so then it became a question of working with the family to see what they were willing to share and why. I had already had a relationship with the family because of that first story, um, and in the end, they made the decision to share with me um, some excerpts of the journal, but not the journal in its entirety. Mm-hmm.
0: That 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 was really important, I think, for establishing the narrative that you had in the story. Um, how did did you ever get into with the family, like why they shared what they did from the journal?
1: We did, and you know, this was such a and you know my, the book that I just finished. Uh, promoting is a book called Superstorm. And it was, uh, you know, based on an article about the sinking of the bounty and um, the sort of residual effects of of Superstorm Sandy. And, you know, that book in so many ways for me was a lesson in empathy. I was writing a story about a ship in which the captain um, had made this terrible decision to go out into a storm, um, had subsequently died. Uh, A crew member on the, the ship had died as well. And spending time with their families and their friends had been such an exercise in just listening, and mm-hmm. you know, I know this sounds kind of cheesy, but being really present and 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 understanding, you know, the emotional, um, just pain, really, that these people are going through, and mm-hmm. I think sometimes as journalists we forget about that. Right. And so, so that had been just this incredible sort of life lesson for me. And so, when this story came along not long afterwards, I found myself back in exactly the same position, which was. Far more than reporting, it was about building relationships. It was about mm-hmm. lots and lots and lots of conversations that happened completely off the record and had nothing to do with the story, but was really about getting to know one another and finding a place of trust for one another. Um, you know, and, and starving to death is, you know, one of the worst ways mm-hmm. to die. And it, and it has an incredible physiological and psychological effect on us and and you know for for obvious reasons you know there are there were moments in this journal which was you know considered a private item by Mm -hmm. the family that they really didn't want to share and and you know so so it was really sort of a it wasn't even really a negotiation because it wasn't Mm -hmm. like i had a position that i was maintaining but it really was about okay what is the story that we want to tell here Um, there's been a lot of criticism about how she was unprepared that she didn't try to be found and that a lot of this was conjecture. The journal, um, stipulated or or sort of substantiated beyond a reasonable doubt, you know, everything she did Mm -hmm. to be found. Mm -hmm. And so it really became about a question about what kind of a legacy the family wanted to leave for her. Um, and whether or not I was the person to help leave that legacy.
0: Mm So you were with them for almost a year as they were still searching with with the family. I mean, not with the family constantly, but you had that relationship with them for about for about a year.
1: I did. I did. I first got in touch with them when I started reporting on the story, which and that would have been fall 2014. Um, and so here we are at the end of 2016. So I've been in touch with them for over two years mm-hmm. at this point and. Um, and it really is, you know, sort of this question of, okay, well, you know, what is everybody's priorities and, you know, being very clear about what roles are um, and why we're having what conversations we're having. Is this on the record? Is this not on the record? Mm-hmm. Is this social? Is this not? Um, and so, you know, I think we've all, frankly, learned a lot through this process. And I've had to learn to trust mm-hmm. in ways that, you know, it, it's very antithetical to a journalist's nature, I think.
0: Right. Had you... um. How did you approach them? Because obviously it had been a year and they had been probably already interviewed a great deal about this. And I could be wrong. Correct me if I am. But you're coming along about a year later and saying, I would like to tell the story. So How how did you do that? And and how did you, I I don't want to say convince them, but I mean convince them to, I guess, work with you on um, trying to tell Jerry's story?
1: I think convinces is a fair word. And, uh, you know, again, going back to the, the subject of the captain of the bounty, it was a very similar situation in both cases. You have families who are, you know, understandably grieving because they've lost a loved one and lost a loved one in, in ways that are, are being criticized by the, mm-hmm. just by the general public. Um, and so I think it really is a matter of just sort of, um, the tables get turned in a really big way and the, the interviewer becomes the interviewee. Mm-hmm. When I uh, when I met with the family of the captain of the Bounty, um, you know, I had assumed I was showing up to interview them, and they basically, you know, put me through a job interview for two hours, and I never asked a question. Right. Um, and, and this was sort of similar. It was sort of like, well, here's why I think I can tell the story, and I can tell it well. Um, I think you know, and I'm sure this is true for for all journalists. I, you know, I rely really heavily on my previous clippings. You know, here, if you can say to someone, here's how I've handled similar stories in the past, and they can take a look at them and they can say, yeah, you know, I'd be okay inserting my loved one into this narrative. Um, I think that helps a lot too. And it's, it's finding some kind of connection, you Mm -hmm. know, where, where it's not just about me wanting the story, it's about me wanting to accurately represent this person who they love very much
0: Mm -hmm. was what was that like that when you went expecting to do an interview and then not asking a single question i mean what was going through your mind as that was happening
1: you know at first it's confusion right Mm -hmm. what is what is this and then you know it kind of slowly starts to click oh here's what's happening and and i have to say i really appreciated it Mm -hmm. i uh you know, to be vetted and come out the other side and have someone say, yeah, we would like you to tell our story is pretty much the best compliment Mm -hmm. we can get. Um, And I I know I've done a pretty good job with a story when I know that it's um, a story that's past fact checking and there's an integrity to the story. And I believe in the objectivity of the story. And yet these people still like me and want to talk to me, you know, I, then I know that I've done a really good job. You know, right. I've done my due diligence as a journalist, but I've also done my due diligence as a person. Um, and obviously, this is not a popularity contest, and this is not an attempt to, to win friends. But but if they can talk to me afterwards and say, yeah, you know, you did a good job, you know, then, then, I, then I know I have, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm.
0: When you sat down to write this story, uh, pretty much the last one, um, can you talk about kind of how you decided to sort out. Um, the structure of it, you know, where where you started it, how you were going to end it. Um, can, you, can you talk about that thought process?
1: Yeah, sure. It's, uh, you know, it's hard because I rely so heavily on narrative, right? Mm-hmm. I rely so heavily on that great narrative arc and all those devices that fiction writers use all of the time and beginning, middles, and ends, and tension, and character development. And, and here was a story where everyone had known the ending of the story mm-hmm. for months at this point. Um, the FOIA files were released, I think, in early May of this year. Um, I had written about the files. We knew that a journal existed. We knew she had survived for some time on the trail. So the sort of like that narrative tension component doesn't really work anymore because we all know what happened. Right. And so, so I decided to start the story pretty much at the end right? And this is where the idea of character really started to, to come into play. Mm-hmm. This guy, Kevin Adam, the head of the the warden search, um, is just an incredible character. And he, um, you know, was probably just about as distraught by this case as the family was, you know, it's one of only two unsolved searches in main game warden history. And that's, you know, a 100 some years of, mm-hmm. of history. And, and, you know, I mean, this is a guy who's still haunted on a nightly basis, you know, woken right. up in the middle of the night by the fact that he couldn't find this woman. And so I felt like that was really the sort of, um, that was sort of the emotional kernel here for a story where we already knew the ending. Mm-hmm. And so I chose to start with him um, and tried to just sort of remind readers why this search was so extraordinary, and why a woman um, missing and trying to be found for two weeks and not being found is, is a pretty unusual case, particularly on the East Coast of the U.S. in the 21st century. Right. And then it was a matter of, you know, backfilling and, you know, figuring out where those set pieces belong. And this story was a little unusual for me in that um, it was pretty much all narrative and very few quotes. Mm-hmm. I usually rely a lot more heavily on quotes, but I felt like what readers really wanted at this point was sort of this tick-tock and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. And so I tried to do that just in the, just the sparsest um voice that I possibly could.
0: All right. The um the family, what what did the family think about the story?
1: The family really liked the story. Um and that was important to me. Um particularly because um you know I've grown to really respect them as people and the way they've handled it. And um because it was this kind of constant emotional negotiation, um, what should we do with this journal? Um, and so, you know, in the end, the, the basic, um, agreement that we came to is that I would use portions of the journal, but I would paraphrase them. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's another reason why there are very few quotes in that story. And so, uh, I did and they liked it and, um, you know, they are definitely ready to move on from Mm -hmm. this story. You know, it's been years at this point and, um, I think they feel like their grieving process is such that. Uh, they would like to not keep reliving this and and move on to a different part of their grief, and I totally respect that Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm.
0: The end of the story is incredibly powerful, and I guess um, when I read that, I almost read that as maybe that was straight from the journal, but is that not straight from the journal? Is it kind of a paraphrase as well?
1: The parts that are in italics are pretty much verbatim. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, there's one place where we basically had to do some excerpting, some sort of you know ellipses type work, and mm-hmm. we we chose to use italics rather than um, doing that. But in general, and certainly that last quote, that is that is a direct quote from the journal.
0: Right. And did you like? When did you know that that was going to be how you were going to end the story? Did you know that pretty early on, or did you? Is that something that just kind of came naturally as you were writing?
1: I knew it when her husband, and this had been a big process for him to decide whether to share or not share, and um, he sent me some passages, and I uh, I was driving home from um, a family vacation, and I saw that he had emailed me, and I sort of pulled over to the side of the road, and I pulled it up, and I saw that passage, and, and I burst into tears, mm-hmm. and so that's exactly when I knew it was the end of the story.
0: Right, right. Um it's an amazing story and hopefully everybody who's listening will go read it and hopefully they've already read it but it, the the headline uh, online is when you find my body the last days of Jerry Largay and it was published in the Boston Globe in the magazine or in the in the newspaper
1: Sunday magazine
0: Sunday magazine so the Boston Globe Sunday magazine um go check it out uh, for sure we'll link to it uh, on the podcast website um Let's, let's switch gears, and, and you've actually mentioned uh, this the, your book Superstorm a couple times already in Hurricane Sandy and the Bounty. Um, can you can you talk about uh, the book Superstorm and kind of how you got interested in that?
1: Sure, my previous book had been a book about the Irish famine and a square rigged ship called the Jeannie Johnston, and so I've become really fascinated with this culture of square rigged ships, particularly in the twenty first century and the crews that that work on them. And so I had a real vested interest in the subject when the bounty sank during Superstorm. And so it originally began as, um, an outside magazine Mm -hmm. story strictly on the sinking of the bounty and the subsequent coast guard rescue. And, uh, the article got, um, a nice amount of attention, um, and got some offers in terms of a book. And so my agent and I, um, kind of shopped it around again and found a really great home for it in Dutton. And and at, at that point, the book still was very much going to have a focus on the bounty. It was mm-hmm. really going to be a bounty book. Um, but as I started writing it, it somehow felt sort of disingenuine to me to be writing a story about two casualties in a storm in which there were 180 mm. casualties. Um, and I felt like I was sort of creating a hierarchy of the importance of them, and, and that started to feel really wrong to me. And so in sort of the 11th hour, my editor and I decided that we would really change the focus. And while the bounty would be one of the main narrative thrusts of the book, that it would be in the context of what else was happening. Because what I found in the story of the bounty, of this captain, who made this decision to sail into the storm Mm -hmm. um, was a decision that was getting made over and over and over again. And while it seemed so anomalous and so egregious that he would make this decision, it was the exact same decision that mayor Bloomberg made when he hosted a press conference less than 24 hours before the storm made landfall Mm -hmm. and told New Yorkers that it was fine. They didn't need to leave, you know? And so it became a bigger issue for me about this question of risk, the natural disasters, and and how we respond to the risk or don't respond to the risks that they pose. Mm-hmm.
0: The um the, you know I remember reading about the Bounty and and I'm sure I read the outside piece um at one point in time and I know I also read Michael Cruz's piece um Last Voyage of the Bounty, um it it did get a lot of a lot of coverage. Um I'm curious though about how. You said the eleventh hour, and we're. Ta- can you explain the eleventh hour when you switched gears and, and made it a broader book? Are you talking after you had done all the reporting for the book on the bounty, or maybe some other other point? Because I could imagine that could be um, nerve wracking to change gears so late, and maybe ex- it was broaden it.
1: <laughs> it was. Uh, you know, I had been uh, the bounty narrative at that point was was written, and mm-hmm. this was probably um, six months before the book was due okay. and i of course had been doing other research i'd been doing a lot of meteorological research about hurricane forecasting and predictions and things like that and so it wasn't like i said oh gosh and now i wonder how hurricanes are formed, right. you know <laughs> right. um, but the but the sort of the sort of again that word the, that phrase like this sort of TikTok aspect mm-hmm. of what was happening in new york um what was happening in miami that i did at um of, I guess as an overlay, really, mm-hmm. um, and so it was. It was six really intense months, um, but you know, I have a terrible habit of working really great on deadline and being really undisciplined <laughs> when I'm not on deadline. Right. So in a way, you know, it sort of fit my uh, my writing style.
0: Right. The um, so so we we've t- uh you you mentioned um as we were talking before we started recording that at um. In, record, in, in reporting on Superstorm, you kind of came up with the idea for your next book, um, which uh, I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, the thing that was the big surprise for me about Superstorm and and uh, really sort of resonated, I think, when I was on the book tour was this idea of, of infrastructure and the decay of the U.S. infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And, and what I discovered was that, you know, this is on an obvious literal level, like our Power lines and our grid and our bridges. But, but what I found reporting in Superstorm was that there's also sort of a, a metaphoric infrastructure that's also in great decay. Uh, I wrote a lot about our weather satellite system, um, our weather forecasting system, which is just beyond outdated and an in a complete crisis. And so, you know, as we were wrapping up the tour and my editor and I were talking about the way in which that story seemed to get a lot of traction, Mm -hmm. um, that it was a story that we needed to tell some more. And, um, we hadn't done that for earthquakes in the U S, um, fracking induced earthquakes have been a real pet interest of mine as an environmental writer for quite some time. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the face of seismicity in this country is just really changing. And I think as we're seeing in Oklahoma, especially, um, places in which there is no earthquake infrastructure are now, um, Enduring significant quakes and so we thought look look, we really need to do this and we need to do it right now And so, um, you know, we were sort of like barely unpacked from Mm -hmm. the Superstorm tour when we started that project as well Um, And that book will be out in the summer of 2017
0: Yeah, it's really something that is almost in the news more and more often especially with earthquakes that um, are almost certainly now being caused by fracking in the Midwest uh, so it, it it seems like it was probably a very big reporting job as well as the as the superstorm book um, and, and a
1: huge learning curve for someone who does not have a background in right. geology and seismicity.
0: Right, right. Um, I kind of wrapping up here, but I, I I love I want to kind of start uh, asking a new question uh, to to my guests on the podcast, um, and, and I'm curious if you could tell me a little bit about uh, your first full time reporting job. And, um, (laughs) and, and what you learned in that, that, um, had a really big impact on, on your career and and how your, how your career has taken shape.
1: So I'm really embarrassed to say that I never had a full-time reporting (laughs) job. I came through this really circuitously. I started writing, um, for a daily paper with a circulation of about 200,000 when I was um, a junior in high school. I was sort of a cub reporter. Um, and I wrote for them. That was my closest to a full-time job. And mm-hmm. I worked 20 hours a week. And and ever since then, um, you know, I took the track of going and getting my PhD and working as a professor who also freelance. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I'm a freelancer who's also a professor. So, yeah, um, if I can use my twenty hour yeah, a week yeah, absolutely. high school job. That's like um, that's
0: like full time for a high school student, I think. So we'll count that.
1: <laughs> you know, that was the most amazing thing. To be in, you know, an old time newsroom, you know, mm-hmm. and in a place where copy editors still, you know, used razor blades to, you know, cut type mm-hmm. and make columns. Um, and to work on deadline and to be there at eleven PM, you know, when something had to be sent to press was really just you know a little a little bit of romance you know mm-hmm. enough to get me excited and to really believe in it and and also to really understand the process from start to finish and to understand um, the ways in which this is really teamwork, you know, and, and um, you are no better than your editor and you are no better than your copy editor and your fact checker. Mm-hmm. Um, and to understand the roles that they play and the, the ways in which they are so rarely, I think, acknowledged for their incredibly important work on any given story. Um, and to, to really just understand the process from, you know, um, story origination to budget meeting to reporting to the fact that what shows up in print may not in fact the story that you thought you were writing, you know, Mm -hmm. or maybe it got cut (laughs) several inches before you thought it was going to. So I think that that, that understanding that idea of process and understanding that idea um, of our responsibility to and our need to really sort of um, humble ourselves before our editors was was really Mm -hmm. powerful.
0: Yeah. um, The the idea of reporter and editor relationship is really huge. And and I'm assuming you've found really good editors in your career. Is that...
1: I have, and they make such a difference. You know, Mm. my, again, my writing is only as good as my editor. Yeah. You know, Uh, my editor, Francis Storrs at the Boston Globe Sunday Magazine, is just an absolute dream. And, you know, he's so present from start to finish. And and he really does see it as sort of collaborative work. And, um, oh, the words he cuts out of my sentences are just so great. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right.
0: Right. Well, Kate, thank you so much for joining the podcast. I really appreciate it.
1: It is my pleasure. Uh, like I said to you before we started, I'm a huge fan, so it's really great to be on the side of it.
0: We've been talking with Katherine Miles. Miles is the author of three books, including Superstorm, Nine Days Inside Hurricane Sandy. Miles currently serves as writer-in-residence at Green Mountain College, where she also teaches in the college's Loeb residence graduate programs. Her forthcoming book, Quakeland, examines the changing face of earthquake hazards in America and will be published by Dutton in July 2017. You can stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter at Podcast. That's at G-A-N-G-R-E-Y-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. You can also like us on Facebook and subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes. Ganger the Podcast is recorded in the studios of WVOF 88.5 FM at Fairfield University and is made possible by the University's College of Arts and Sciences. Technical help was offered by Chase Castle. All the music in the podcast was produced by Noah Heyman. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.